This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later in this hour, 50,000 auto workers went out on strike Sunday night against General Motors. It's the first auto strike since 2007, and it comes at a time of growing inequality in America. Jane McAlevey will comment. She's the new strikes correspondent for The Nation. Also, last week, Tory rebels in Parliament staged a dramatic insurrection against their own Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, blocking his plans for a no-deal Brexit. But virtually no Republicans in Congress have resisted Trump. Why is that? D.D. Guttenplan will comment. He's editor of The Nation, and he's lived in Britain for the last 25 years. And we'll also have a word about the global student climate strike. It's everywhere. It's tomorrow, Friday. And in L.A., it's downtown at Pershing Square at noon. There are a lot of reasons to strike. Strike because the people who did the least to cause this crisis suffer first and worst. The people losing their farms to deserts and watching their islands sink beneath the waves. And, of course, the school kids. They aren't the ones who burned the coal and gas and oil. First up, the Working Families Party just endorsed Elizabeth Warren, not Bernie Sanders. Trump Watch starts right now. The Working Families Party is the labor left organization that advocates for a more progressive democratic politics. In 2016, they endorsed Bernie Sanders for president, but last week they voted to endorse Elizabeth Warren for 2020. For comment and analysis, we turn to John Nichols. He's national affairs correspondent for The Nation, and he's host of the Next Left podcast. John, welcome back. John Wiener, do you know what I love about this radio station? Tell me. The like bumper intros, the little <laughs> promo things. That was pretty good. By, like people, like Joni Mitchell. That was pretty good. Yeah. I, I mean, I, come on. <laughs> that is like way cooler than any radio station I. I ever I I have to agree. I said I said over the intercom, Joni Mitchell. Wow, wow that's pretty great. So the, yeah, you know, come on, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the Working Families Party. What exactly is it? How does it work? So the Working Families Party is a really fascinating experiment um, and project. Now, it's beyond experimental stage. Um, it was started back in the 1990s after a, a really important battle uh, that went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. It was a battle to allow fusion voting. And the concept was that uh, Joel Rogers and some other people, some real good theorists on politics, wanted to open up our politics so that there could be multiple parties um, which could fuse their votes, i.e., you could uh, vote for a Democratic candidate, for instance, running on the Democratic line or on a line of a more left-wing party uh, like the Working Families, with the concept then that they would notice if their margin of victory came from the left. Yeah. And also, if a Democrat went to the right went too conservative, then this third party could nominate an alternative candidate and sometimes even beat the Democrats and Republicans. It is a great concept. The project did not win at the Supreme Court, tragically, but um, those who were involved in it decided to at least do it in the states that allowed fusion and then to build out from that. 
And so they started in New York, which has historically allowed for fusion voting and continues to do so, even though Andrew Cuomo sometimes tries to threaten it. Um, it did very, very well. It's had a lot of success, uh, including helping to elect uh, Bill de Blasio, mayor of New York City, uh, and a lot of key figures like Tish James, who is now the attorney general of New York State. Um, and they've expanded nationally, gone into states like Pennsylvania, my own state of Wisconsin, and other ones, and then really significant players. So they are, the, the WFP, um, both in New York State and nationally, is an important uh, grouping on the left. And I would also add, in New York at least, they are very serious about developing candidates, running candidates for all kinds of beginning offices, uh, you know, school yeah. board, zoning board, and then working them up through the hierarchy until they're ready to run for Congress uh, and and even higher. So they're a, a serious political operation that, that has become a force in New York politics. Yeah, and if I can just add on to that, I mentioned Tish James a couple minutes ago. People are really noticing Tish James now as the Attorney General of New York uh, because she's taking on Trump. In fact, uh, there are some people who believe she may be uh, the elected official who does more to take down Trump than anybody else. So um, she's a big deal. And the interesting thing is that her first race, the first race she won, um, she won as a working families candidate for the city council in New York City. Yeah. And, um, and that was a breakthrough win for them, a breakthrough win for her. And it's just an example of, um, what this party does, it has nurtured up a, a lot of significant political figures. Well, they tell us now that they had a three-month endorsement process in which tens of thousands participated in debate and discussion in online forums and live Q&As with five contenders for the Democratic nomination. The highest vote-getter vote was Elizabeth Warren with 61% of the vote. Bernie got 36%. Uh, what's the significance of this vote and of this endorsement? Well, it's, it's to, to clarify, it's a little more complicated. It was 50% of the votes um, came from the membership of the party, right, the, the grassroots members of the party, and then um, 50% from its uh, national board. Yeah. And so uh, what's important to understand is that from what we know, and I mean, they haven't released their figures for um, the breakdown on the vote, right? But what, from what we know is a lot of WFP members are very enthusiastic about both Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. Um, in fact, they say that 80% of the people that voted voted for um, the two of them, or voted for one of them. One or the other, one yeah. Or another. Yeah, so, I mean, I, what they have sought to emphasize in talking about this endorsement is that they don't see it so much as a rejection of Bernie Sanders, although many Sanders people don't like it, of course, um, but more an embrace of Warren in a sense that, that uh, on the part of the grassroots membership and the, and the leadership of the organization, um, they, they're impressed with Warren. They like her. And um, for Warren, this is a big deal. Um, you know, there are are a handful of groups on the left that have made endorsements. Most have not. Most unions have stood down uh, up to this point. Uh, most uh, 
environmental social activist groups have chosen to let this great big field kind of sort itself out. And that's, that's not an unhealthy uh, pattern, but you know, at the end of the day, choices have to be made. And the WFP folks have said, you know, it's time to move um, because Trump's obviously working his ground. Um, what they have referred to as the corporate Democrats are working hard for Biden. And uh, their argument, you have to make a choice. Now, other groups have chosen differently. Democratic Socialists of America uh, gave a strong endorsement to Bernie Sanders. Progressive Democrats of America, another group, has endorsed Bernie Sanders. Um, and so, you know, what we're seeing is that groups are starting to line up. They're not all lining up in the same place. But because the Working Families Party has a real presence in some big delegate states, places like uh, uh, obviously New York, but also Pennsylvania, uh, again, Wisconsin, and a number of other states across the country, uh, what they've done here is a big deal. And, you know, it, it does have relevance for the Warren campaign especially. And let me just add that that DSA not only voted to endorse uh, Bernie, this was uh, elected delegates in a national convention, a, a much bigger and more democratic process, I would say. They not only voted to endorse Bernie, they added they would refuse to endorse anyone else who won the Democratic endorsement. So they announced ahead of time that if Elizabeth Warren wins at the Democratic National Convention, wins the nomination, becomes the candidate of the Democrats challenging Trump, DSA is not supporting her. They're going to sit this one out. So that's a very strong, I would say, uh, move away from Elizabeth Warren by another big group uh, of progressives. It is, but, but um, and I'm, not, I'm certainly not going to try and speak for any of these groups. You know, I think they all have their, their internal uh, traditions and workings. But one thing to understand is that what you do in the primary process, right, or in the, in the nominating process, uh, can be affected by where it ends up, right? Um, who gets nominated, who's nominated for vice president, and also just the, the clarity that comes from taking on, you know, probably Donald Trump on the chance that the Bill Weld challenge does not dis dislodge him. Um, and so with that in mind, uh, I tend to look at, you know, who these groups are for, not who they're against. Um, and it's not to do some sort of uh, kumbaya, everybody should <laughs> get along with things, but it is because I've covered enough politics. I've seen situations where primary rivals who really are going at each other and who, you know, maybe really, really do disagree with one another, uh, find common ground once a, a nomination is made. So we'll see where it goes out. But at this point, what I do think is important and, and what I do think is valid is that people are going to have to make choices. You cannot yeah. uh, ultimately, you know, say, well, let's see how it sorts out. At some point, relatively early on, this process is going to come to states like California. Yeah. And I don't know that endorsements mean everything, um, but they do have meaning and they shouldn't be underestimated. The WFP, for instance, has shown a lot of capacity for organizing and activism in New York State. It's also doing some really exciting stuff in places like Philadelphia and Milwaukee. Um, and so that's useful for Warren. Uh, DSA has, as another example, you know, another uh, grouping other, tremendous energy 
um, on their behalf in a lot of places across the country. And notably, we briefly mentioned PDA, another group that, the Progressive Democrats of America, another group that has endorsed Sanders. You know, in some states like Arizona, um, they're very strong. They have a lot of people who actually, you know, go out and do the work. Um, and so what I'm starting to see is, is this, you know, choosing your candidate, choosing where you want to be. And the next stage of this, where it's going to get really fascinating, is where some of the unions step up. Yeah. And at this point, unions generally have not, uh, although it's notable United Electrical, uh, which is a great old left-wing union, uh, has endorsed Bernie Sanders. Some union locals around the country have begun to make endorsements. The firefighters have endorsed Joe Biden. Um, So, but that's a big thing because union endorsements often come with significant resources and, you know, slate cards, mailings, all sorts of things that have, can have meaning. Well, elsewhere on the endorsement front, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez endorsed someone named Marie Newman, uh, challenging Democratic incumbent Dan Lipinski uh, on Chicago's South Side. Who is Dan Lipinski, and what is this about? <laughs> Dan Lipinski, you know, Dan Lipinski is best summed up by the old story of Chicago. That, you know, in Chicago, uh, because of the distinctive politics of that city and where the power tends to lie, um, you know, if you're really, you know, you know, sharp and on top of things and really the cutting edge, uh, you serve on the city council. And if you can't make it onto the city council, uh, maybe you can get to the legislature. And if you can't make it to the legislature, they send you to Congress. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and don't laugh. There are, there are prominent national elected officials who like, kind of like drop back into Chicago. Uh, and so Dan Lipinski is of that old school Chicago politics. Um, and he uh, has been in Congress for quite a while. Um, he represents a working class district. There's no question of that. But he has really kind of stuck to the old-fashioned, dare I say, conservative Democratic tradition. Um, he is socially quite conservative on a host of issues. Uh, he has been, you know, either voting with the Republicans or, if not voting with the Republicans, um, he certainly hasn't given a lot of opposition. Now, that doesn't mean that he's awful on every issue. On a number of union issues and things, he's actually pretty good. Um, but there's simply no question that Marie Newman, uh, the woman who was running against him and who almost beat him in the last election, came within an inch of beating him the last time around, is a full-spectrum progressive. She's running as um, somebody who really is in tune with, you know, I would say the Congressional Progressive Caucus, uh, the mainstream of progressive politics in uh, the Democratic Party right now. And I think she has a very, very good chance of beating Dan Lipinski in this primary, uh, just as um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez beat Joe Crowley, uh, who's frankly a, a more liberal member than Lipinski, in her primary in 2018. Ayanna Presley also beat an incumbent. So this is sort of the, the race of 2020, or one of the races of 2020, that's getting a lot of attention because you might see an incumbent get beat. And, yeah. and let me add, this is a violation of the rules of the Democratic National Committee, 
which supports all incumbents against all challengers, including challenges in primaries from other Democrats. And there are sanctions against people who campaign and people who work in campaigns against uh uh, in Democratic primary campaigns. So AOC here is not just challenging one right-wing Democrat by supporting the challenger. She's challenging the entire DNC, the entire uh, incumbent system. Yeah, and with all due respect, um, if if I had to choose a side in fight <laughs> between AOC and the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, I would, yeah, I would definitely, and I'm not talking about a personal side like that, I'm just saying practically, um, I think I'd take the AOC side, <laughs> yeah, um, because she has a huge following, and you know, frankly, she has uh, become in many ways a uh, a voice for a politics of principles. And you know, I really want to, if I could just take a second to call out this whole, you know, absurd notion that you can't have Democratic primary challenges. Um, you know, it's just important to remember Ron Dellum one of the greatest members of Congress in the 20th century, got to Congress by defeating a Democratic incumbent in 1970. Bella Abzug, one of the greatest feminists ever to serve in Congress, one of the greatest people ever to serve in Congress, got to Congress by defeating a Democratic incumbent in a 1970 primary. Um, you know, Elizabeth Holtzman, who's one of the leaders in the fight uh, to hold Richard Nixon account to account, got to Congress by defeating a, a long-term Democratic incumbent in a primary. This notion that, um, you know, primaries shouldn't, shouldn't you know, let the, let the best man or woman win is absurd. And, and if we really applied that standard historically, we'd knock some of our greatest members of Congress out. And there's one more I would mention, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez herself. Is the current greatest member. Uh, two minutes left here. Uh, do you think uh, this is the, the first endorsement in the 2020 election cycle by AOC? Do you think it's going to be the last one that she makes? No, I definitely do not. And, and my sense is that, you know, she's, there's a piece in the New York Times just today about, um, you know, what a sophisticated member of Congress she has developed into, or how people are trying to recognize her real political skills. Now, I got to say, this was obvious to some of us a long time ago, not merely by the fact that she won her primary, but also in traveling with her. I, I was out on the trail with her watching her campaign for other candidates. She really is. A, an incredibly skilled political thinker and strategist and doer. And so I think she will make endorsements. I think they will be very well thought and very carefully chosen. It won't just be every candidate, you know, in every race, uh, or everyone she likes, per se. Uh, I think she will use her position. But here's a notable thing. She has endorsed in another primary, and that is in Massachusetts, where she has stepped up, I believe, on behalf of Ed Markey, uh, the senator in Massachusetts, who faces a potential primary challenge from uh, a member of the Kennedy family. And, uh, and AOC has pointed out correctly that Ed Markey has been a real leader on the Green New Deal. Yeah. Great. John Nichols, he wrote about the Working Families Party endorsing Elizabeth Warren for The Nation. You can read him at thenation.com. John, thanks so much. Always great to have you on the show. It's always an honor to be with you. Uh, 
the coolest man in L.A. <laughs> Please. Uh, <clears throat> I just get choked up when he says that. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK with Trump Watch and the Trump Watch podcast. Next up, the first auto workers strike in more than a decade. That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK, streaming at kpfk.org, and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Later in this hour, the Tories in Parliament have rebelled against their own Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, blocking his plans for a no-deal Brexit. But virtually no Republicans in Congress have resisted Trump. Why is that? Don Guttenplan will explain. We'll also have a word about the global student climate strike. It's everywhere. It's tomorrow, Friday. And in L.A., it's downtown at Pershing Square at noon. There are a lot of reasons to strike. Strike because sun and wind are now the cheapest way to generate power around the world. If we could match the political power of the fossil fuel industry, we could make fast progress. But first... A different strike already underway. The UAW is on strike against General Motors for the first time since 2007. For comment and analysis, we turn to Jane McAlevey. She's the new strikes correspondent for the nation. She's also now a senior policy fellow at the UC Berkeley Labor Center. Uh, Her third book, A Collective Bargain, Unions Organizing and the Fight for Democracy will be published January 1st. Jane McAlevey, welcome back. Thank you. Great to be here. Well, how come the UAW is striking General Motors now after a dozen years without a strike? I think uh, several reasons. Um, The first is that workers learn to strike and have the confidence to strike by watching other workers strike and win. And you yourself are sitting uh, in Los Angeles, which was the ground zero for one of the most magnificent strikes that's happened in the last few decades in this country. Um, So you can see a through line between the education strikes that began in earnest in early 2018 and rolled through the country to the stop and to the, to the Marriott strike, by the way, that that happened last fall, to then the LA teacher strike, and then Oakland, and then a bunch of other smaller strikes. And lots, by the way, there's lots of smaller strikes that aren't getting the same attention in lots of hospitals and healthcare settings across the country. Um, and then back to Stop and Shop, right? Huge strike this uh, spring in New England. Um, and so it, it just it makes good sense for workers whose contract expired um, fighting a company that the American taxpayers bailed out to the tune of $11 billion, that's with a B, dollars, you, me, and everyone listening, bailed this company out. Um, and what the auto workers at General Motors received in response was several plant closings and, a more, uh, and more proposals for a concessionary contract. That is what leads to a strike. And I understand General Motors has been doing pretty well in the last couple of years. General Motors has been raking in huge profits. Um, you know, and, when, and, and I think for, for, for the average worker, when you watch um, your employer raking in billions in profits um, and then turn around and say, well, 
you know, we thought, we, you know, we, it might be, and we'd love to give you, you know, you and your family and your community some more money. Um, but, you know, now we have this downward pressure because as a, as a leadership of the corporation, we've been such buttheads. We didn't realize that electric cars and fossil fuel issues might lead to downward pressure in the auto industry. So we neglected to pre-think the clear pressures of the climate justice movement that were facing us. And, you know, now we need to use all that profit that we made, you know, and reinvest it, you know, in some new technology. And so we can't afford to pay you, and we're going to close more plants. Like, that's the line coming out of the company, which, if I was a worker, would make me walk off the job and probably grab a pitchfork, frankly, <laughs> right? So um, it's just, it's a bunch of crap. And, you know, in, in the company's own press releases, what you see is just, you know, an abrogation of good business planning, let alone, you know, a total insult to the to, to not just the General Motors workforce, but to every auto worker, to their communities, and to this country. And um, and the workers are pissed, and they should be. Um, they were double taxed, right? They 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 were American taxpayers who like bail their own bosses out, right, to the tax system. And then they took concessionary contracts coming off of the Great Recession. They were asked to take you know, painful concessions um, coming out of the Great uh, Recession, as it's called. Um, and then they, and then, you know, uh, this time last year, basically, the first announcements come of the closing of the Lordstown plant, then the Hamtramck plant. I mean, you know, enough is enough. Um, yeah, in a big way, enough is enough in this country. So let's talk specifically about some of the issues uh, in the strike. For me, one of the most interesting ones is the way temporary – it's not just about wages for the full-time union members. Temporary workers are a big issue for the union in this strike. Let's talk about that. Yeah. First of all, most strikes are not about wages and working conditions for the existing workers. I mean, it, I just want to say that. Yeah. I can't say that enough. Because it's a, it's a myth of simple and lazy journalism and the bosses that workers walk out for wages. I mean, like, yes, wages are an issue, but in every strike I've had the pleasure of being involved in, which has been quite a few, it was never the leading issue. Never. And I don't believe it is in the GM strike either. They're striking for their dignity. They're striking to hold their corporation accountable to the American taxpayer and to the communities that they are abandoning. And yes, the workers are pissed off that this contract, they need to make those temporary workers whole. They need to give them a pathway immediately to become full workers. The, the General Motors Corporation is doing what so many companies are doing in this country in just the latest round of insults of how they make the American worker and the American worker's family and community unstable, which is you, you hire a worker by the thousands who works right next to another worker. One is paid $15 an hour. One is paid $29 an hour and covered by the union contract. And the two workers are doing the exact same work. That is... Uh, it's not just on the part of the corporate class, what we call two-tiering a contract. That is not simply to save money, though obviously it's to save money. It's also a deliberate strategy on the part of capital and corporations to break worker solidarity, to create a less stable union, to begin to create ruptures among the working class inside the, the, the walls of the workplace. So, the workers that I've spoken to so far who are involved in the General Motors strike have said resoundingly that their core demand is one around 
reopening or keeping open, keeping open some of the plants that are being threatened with closure right now that are planned to be closed, but they're still open. That's actually very important. Like the Lordstown plant is still open. It's scheduled to close in December, so there was like no time like now but to go on strike because, um, you know, once a plant actually closes and the machinery stops working, things get much more complicated. So they've got a plant with thousands of workers that is still working that is scheduled for closing. So that's a core demand in that strike is you keep that plan open and you repurpose it for some electric car or something creative that we're going to need in this country, right? So or trucks that are electric or something. But the, the issue of the temporary workers is absolutely an equal and core demand. And, John, it's not even just temporary. There's actually two sets of workers that they have to make whole with the rest of the workers. There's temporary workers. There's several thousand of them across GM now working side-by-side side with other workers, and they're, re- they're literally getting like $15 an hour, which is just an insult for an auto worker, and, and well, it should be for most workers, frankly. But, and then there's a second tier of workers who actually are being covered by the union contract that came out of that recessionary period as well um, in 08 and 09, and they're they're actually in the union, and they're making. I think I can't, I'm not positive. I think it's like 21. So they're they're six or seven ahead of the temp workers, but they're still structurally behind the regular workers. And that's that's the devil of the detail of what's called a two tiered yeah. contract, where for no reason except that the boss had more power than the workers at the moment of the contract was settled. Um, a bunch of workers who are coming on after the higher date of the contract are going to make less for no reason except corporate greed. Uh, shutting down Lordstown, for those of us who were around in the 60s and 70s, GM Lordstown is a legendary place of rebellious uh, workers. Uh, it's, it's part of the history of, of uh, rebellion, not just against GM, but, but against the UAW bureaucracy. Yeah, it is. Um, and since I wasn't conscious, or I mean, I guess I was technically alive, but I was a baby, um, you may be able to speak to it more firsthand, although the ripple effect of the rank-and-file upsurge. Um, well, I, I grew up in, in, in New York State, but on the border of New Jersey, and that same movement you're describing that was taking place in Lordstown um, also led to a huge strike by drum at the Ford Motor Plant um, by, the, by the black revolutionary workers, sort of led to a giant walkout in Mawa, New Jersey, that was just over the border of where I grew up, and by the way, where my, where my father was a a politician put in by the trade unions, um, and that I just know as a as a as a toddler that that strike is still in my head because mm-hmm. it was such a big deal when it happened. Mm-hmm. But I couldn't possibly talk to you chapter and verse about it, except <laughs> that yes, Lordstown is part of a legacy of workers fighting back. And by the way, you know, in the in the piece in the Nation magazine, you know, I obviously acknowledge that the very top officialdom of the auto workers. Um, sadly, no different than the 60s round of strikes, um, is, is led by the same, it's a caucus in the union, it's like a political party within the union. So the, the, the current leadership or the current elected officials, I might say differently, the current elected officials in the auto workers nationally um, are, you know, under a huge FBI investigation. It's giving a black eye to the strike. I think we shouldn't spend a lot of time on it because, frankly, it's an insult. The workers have to work it out on their own. And one way that the workers are doing that is by exerting their leadership right now on their strike. And it's beautiful to see 49,000 workers saying, we're going to take control of this. We want to end the two-tier system. We want to bring the temporary workers to make them whole with the rest of us. Like the rank and file really feel and own that this strike is about keeping plants open and about making the workers whole. And that's a beautiful act of rebuilding solidarity among the ranks. 
The weird thing about this strike is I think it's the first one where a Republican president is pressuring the company on, I guess, on behalf of the workers. Trump has been a frequent antagonist of the of General Motors and the other uh, auto companies for moving their plants to Mexico and firing people in the United States. And one of his big claims is that he's going to bring those plants back to the United States. He's met with Mary uh, Barra, the new head of MGM. Uh, how important is this a factor in the GM strike right now, do you think? You know, I think, first of all, let's acknowledge the evil genius that is the orange haired <laughs> yes. guy, because, yes. you know, he, he, he's a reality star, TV star, and he understands that this is a big moment and that Americans are rooting for these workers, right? So what's interesting is Americans were also rooting for the L.A. teachers. Last I looked, they were also rooting for the West Virginia teachers, a bunch of women and women of color, and you didn't see that same man standing up with them, but I digress. <laughs> so why is he doing this? Why? It's, an electoral, it's electorally a brilliant move for him. That's all it is. And by the way, it's so cynical because he, if Trump gave a shit about those workers, he would have been pounding and using the desk of the presidency last fall when Mary Barra announced the closing of Lordstown. No, it took, wor- it took the workers going out on strike to drag him in, right, like looking for an electoral moment, as does all the other, you know, people running for president in this country, and everyone's going to want to be showing up on those picket lines. But, yeah, this guy's going to come, too, because it, it is, it are, it, it, you know, there's workers in electorally significant swing states that he won by the narrowest of margins, um, and he wants to be able to ride on a high horse. Look, kind of brilliant strategy on his part. Again, he's, you know, when people call him stupid, I always say, wrong word, he's an evil genius. He's evil, and he's a genius. So, um, of course, he's going to try and help. The, the, good new, the good thing about that, if there's anything good, the one good thing, I think, is every single presidential candidate wants a piece of supporting these workers, and that may be one reason that we can feel hopeful that despite the inept top officials, of the union, the workers may win despite them, because it's a, it's, it's, they're geographically, strategically located in terms of the electoral map in this country, and you've got every single presidential candidate tripping over themselves. But I think that no matter who intervenes, no matter what kind of leverage is brought to bear, the rank-and-file workers, the 49,000, are the only ones who deserve the credit for whatever victory plays out in this strike, because they're, for, they're the ones who are forcing it. Right. I mean, if I were those workers and there's been a bunch of workers saying, like, we don't want him anywhere near this. But the truth is, if you're you know, if you're out, if you're if you're out, if you're out on a picket line and you're trying to get your jobs back and you're trying to hold thousands of jobs um, at Lordstown, that Hamtramck and a bunch of places where where whole communities are being devastated in profound ways by the actions of greedy corporations in this country. You're, you're not going to throw, you know, a lifeline back to anyone who's throwing it to you, right? So what, what we have to keep clear is that Trump himself, if he was such a big bravado, macho guy who could have just fixed stuff, when he ran for office in those states in 2016, he's quoted as saying, no plants closing in these states on my watch. Well, you lied, because the, the plant closing plan has been in place for quite some time. It's only because the workers to their own agency have walked off the job, that the issue of him now intervening is resurfacing. He, he failed those workers. That plan is scheduled for closure. So it's their own action that's forcing the crisis, which is what a beautiful strike does. It forces a crisis for the power holders, and the workers are forcing the level of a crisis that is making everyone pay attention to them. And that's why strikes matter. 
The president of General Motors, this woman, Mary Barra, the first woman to hold the job, was profiled in the New York Times business section on Sunday. Big piece about how hard she has worked the past year visiting plants across the Midwest and South. The paper called it, quote, a mission to create goodwill among unionized workers ahead of contract talks. Then they described at great length all the places she's been and all the workers she talked to. And then they have one sentence, the effort hasn't engendered as much harmony as GM might have hoped, close quote. I wonder if you have any comment on Mary Barra's efforts. <laughs> no. A little, a little late, Mary Barra. No. I mean, I've, I've also watched, like, CEOs show up at the last minute, you know, before workers walked out on strike. And, you know, by the, yeah, I mean, by then it's like, okay, we're done with you. You know, I mean, Mary Barra could have prioritized the workers by not announcing the closure of the Lordstown plant. She could have said, I'm going to plow the $11 billion that the American taxpayer put into this company when we were in hard times in 2007 and 2008. I'm going to, I'm going to now reward the American taxpayer, American communities, and these workers first and foremost by plowing that money into renovating the Lordstown plant and figuring out a clever, smart um, way to start building electric cars for which there will be huge demand. And by the way, electric pickup trucks, right? The specialty of GM is a lot of their pickup trucks. And we have yet to see a, a really effervescent effort on the part of corporations to like catch up with, frankly, just good business planning. It's like business failure, not just um, insulting uh, to the General Motors workers that they, that they didn't pre-think how to take a state-of-the-art plant, $11 billion of taxpayer money, and figure out what can we do to actually rebuild American communities versus gut more of them. That's, that's on Mary Barra and GM. We've got about two minutes left here. What's it going to take for the workers to win this strike? You know, it's going to take them doing just what they're doing, which is standing really strong on the picket lines. It's going to take their communities rally behind them, which I think the communities are doing. It's going to, we should let, we should embrace every presidential candidate in the country, tripping over them and calling to support them to win. Um, they're members of Congress. You know, you've, you know, when you've strikes, we're at the point where you have strikes where you have, you know, op-ed pages in the New York Times supporting the workers and the Washington Post and the, the political elite, everyone rallying behind them. It's, it's a good sign that if the workers hold strong and their communities hold strong with them um, and the leadership, you know, either supports them or gets out of the way, um, I think that despite the many challenges that they face, them standing strong in their communities with their community behind them and the strategic location they occupy in the electoral political math of this country bodes well. Um, though it's, it's tough, right? And, and quite frankly, uh, <laughs> You know, having the top officials, uh, you know, having their houses raided right now is, you know, it's just, it's complicated by what's happening at the top. Um, and it would have been nice if the 1967-68 strikes had fixed that problem. Um, but I have a lot of faith in these workers, and I think a lot of the workers have their eye on the prize. And they're in a, they're, they're in a good moment to strike. They're in important states to strike. Um, and I think, I, think, I think we're seeing that sort of the broader American public is standing with them. Jane McAlevey, she's the nation's new strikes correspondent. She wrote about the UAW strike against GM for thenation.com. Thank you, Jane. Great to have you on the show. Thank you, John. Always good to be here. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, and this is Trump Watch. Next up, the Tories in Parliament are rebelling. Why aren't the Republicans in Congress? That's in a minute on KPFK when Trump Watch continues. 
It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in LA on KPFK. Later in this hour, we'll have a word about the global student climate strike. It's tomorrow, Friday. It's everywhere in the country and around the world. And in LA, it's downtown at Pershing Square at noon. There are a lot of reasons to strike. Strike because Exxon and the rest knew all about global warming in the 1980s and then lied so they could keep cashing in. But first... How come the Tories in Parliament are so much more willing to challenge Prime Minister Boris Johnson than Republicans in Congress are to challenge Donald Trump? For comment, we turn to D.D. Guttenplan. He's editor of The Nation. Before that, he was one of the magazine's lead correspondents covering the 2016 presidential campaign. And he's the author of the book, The Next Republic, The Rise of a New Radical Majority. Don, welcome back. Great to be back, John. Well, last week, rebels in the Conservative Party staged a dramatic insurrection against Prime Minister Boris Johnson. They blocked a no-deal Brexit, his plan to withdraw Britain from the European Union without a deal on trade or borders. In Washington, in contrast, of course, it's hard to find more than a couple of Republicans who've stood up to Trump, even when he flouted party orthodoxy on issues like trade and tariffs or immigration or the deficit. So how big a deal is it in Britain for one party to block their own prime minister's most important initiative in parliament? There are a couple of points to make here, John. One is that uh, your kind and generous introduction to me could have been supplemented by the fact that I also lived in Britain for the last 25 years. So when I talk about Brexit, I'm talking about something that I've seen from up close. I voted in the referendum, uh, or at least I voted by proxy because uh, I wasn't allowed to leave the country without giving my wife my proxy <laughs> so that we could cast a household of Remain votes. That was four votes in our household for Remain. But I'm not without some sympathy for the Brexiteers. We've published in the nation uh, Lord Glassman, who's a prominent left Brexiteer uh, in the House of Lords. So, you know, I think it's a complicated issue. But the short point is that, you know, America is a presidential system with a balance of powers, but where the president has enormous sway over the political fortunes of the members of his party, even without a formal party structure. Whereas in Britain, you have a parliamentary system in which the prime minister is the leader of whichever party has the most seats. So, you know, nobody voted for Boris for prime minister. People voted for Boris for party leaders for party leader, but the people who voted for Boris for party leader were just 130,000 conservative party members. So it's a tiny electorate. Uh, And clearly the Republican Party senators have shown almost no backbone in the face of Trump's many outrages and provocations. But to be fair to them, he has a lot more power to retaliate against them when they do. You know, he can campaign against them for re-election, which is actually forbidden by the codes of both parties. If you if you're the conservative party leader and you campaign against a conservative who's running for re-election on the party line, you'd be expelled from the party. Uh same for labor. So, you know, there's there's less scope for retaliation. Uh but even with that, I would say that you have a a Republican Senate uh conference in the United States of extraordinary cowardice at the moment. So, If the Republicans in Congress are spineless cowards, does that mean that the Tories, in contrast, are honorable men of principle? Mostly not, 
but uh, they do have a little bit more spine than their Republican counterparts. I mean, look, what happened is that there's an issue in Britain, the question of whether to remain in or leave the European Union, which actually divides both parties. So that what you had, you had to have a, a certain number of Tories rebelling against the leadership in order to handcuff them into not leaving the European Union without a deal. That's what this legislation was about. And it would not have passed without some Tory votes. And in fact, a lot of Tories are against leaving the European Union because they believe, in my view correctly, that it will be bad for business, bad for British corporations, bad for British banks, and all of the traditional you know, economic interests that the Tory party has always sought to serve. So it wasn't hard to find Tories who thought Brexit was a, not just a bad idea, but a catastrophic one. And when you have a leader whose hold on power is as weak as Johnson's was, because remember, until last week, he had a majority of one. And then a week ago, the one Tory party member crossed the floor, which is the expression they used because it was literally true. He walked across the floor of the House of Commons from the Tory or conservative benches to the liberal Democrats benches and became a member of the liberal Democrat delegation, thus depriving Johnson of his majority. So you have this situation where there is parliamentary gridlock. No party commands a majority at the moment. And what would, what would have happened in the past in that case was that there would have been an election. If you can't command a parliamentary majority on a vote of confidence, then until until 2010, that would have been reason to hold an election. What happened in 2010, and this is kind of, for students of British politics, this is a kind of delectable detail, because one of the stories on the front pages of the British press this week was of Boris Johnson referring to David Cameron, his predecessor, and the man who put the Brexit referendum to the British people uh, as a girl's blouse, you know, as he wasn't, he wasn't a manly leader. And what's interesting is that Johnson's current predicament is actually Cameron's revenge because it was Cameron who sponsored the Fixed Term Parliament Act that changed the rules of British politics so that instead of having an election whenever a leader lost a majority on a vote of confidence, they would serve for fixed five-year terms and that the only way to override that is to have a two-thirds vote calling an election. Now, in recent past, whenever there had been a question of whether to have an election, leaders of oppositions tend to say, yes, of course you can have an, op an election because we're, we're going to do well because governments only call those kind of elections when they don't have a majority or when they're in trouble. But in this case, Jeremy Corbyn, despite being repeatedly goaded by Boris Johnson and accused of cowardice himself for not calling an election, refused to rise to the bait and said, of course, we'll have an election, but only after only after we've taken no deal off the table, only after this bill which we passed has actually gained the Queen's assent and become the law of the land. The New York Times offered another reason. They said Trump was distasteful, their word, to a lot of Republicans, but he has fulfilled a lot of the traditional Republican agenda, lower taxes, tax breaks for corporations and the rich, appointing lots of Republican judges, and that Boris Johnson has not fulfilled the, the Tory agenda to that degree. You think that's true? Well, I think it's true that Boris Johnson hasn't fulfilled the Tory agenda to any, de 
degree, he hasn't won a single vote since he's been prime minister. <laughs> so his record on fulfilling an agenda is, is one of disastrous failure. As to whether Trump has delivered on the traditional Republican agenda, I guess that that depends on your views. You know, it wasn't too long ago that uh, Mitch McConnell was posing as the guardian of fiscal probity and someone who was refusing to let Barack Obama as president do anything that would increase the deficit. And the Republican Party was the party that cared more about balancing the federal budget than anything else. And of course, they've completely thrown that out the window. Uh, they've completely thrown the question of looking after veterans out the window. Uh, if they're going to campaign as the party of tax breaks for the rich, he's delivered on that agenda. And, you know, maybe that's all they actually care about. Another big difference is there's something in Britain called the Brexit Party. And I guess there's nothing the Republicans face that's anything like the Brexit Party. Is that a fair statement? Uh, yes, and it's an important factor. The Brexit Party is Nigel Farage who is, of course, beloved by Donald Trump. It's his vehicle, and he, he started it in order to put Brexit on the ballot. He succeeded in getting Brexit on the ballot. When, when Brexit passed, he announced that he was resigning, but then the party fell into a shambles, so he came back. And he's resurrected it very cannily as a kind of a, a vehicle on the right of the Tory party or to the right of the Tory party to hold the Tories to account on delivering Brexit. So... To the extent to which uh, Johnson or any Tory prime minister, Theresa May, was tempted or may have been tempted to compromise or not deliver the kind of Brexit that the right wing of the Tory party want, where they basically can uh, abrogate any kind of labor standards or social welfare net that Europe mandates, Farage is there to say, well, we'll, we'll take your voters if you're not careful. And they've They've made good on that thread, at least in the polls. They've done very well in the polls. Now, because of the first-past-the-post system in Britain, they don't have a whole lot of members of parliament, but they're definitely an electoral force that terrifies Johnson, terrified Theresa May. They're the reason that David Cameron put the question on the ballot in the first place. And in fact, in the north of Britain, they might well take votes from Labour as well in industrial cities where the people voted for Brexit and which are traditional Labour strongholds. So there's, there's nothing like that. There's nobody even vaguely sane to the right of the Republican Party in American politics. It seems like the Republicans who think Trump is a, a disaster prefer to retire quietly rather than challenge him openly, like the Tories did with Boris Johnson. Do you see any sign that Republicans in the United States will follow the example of their friends across the Atlantic and stiffen their spines in standing up to Trump? Well, you know, there are a couple of honorable exceptions. There's William Weld, who's running a somewhat quixotic campaign for president. There's Terry Sanford, who's uh, come back from the woods to challenge President Trump. And, of course, we mustn't forget Justin Amash, who, who did the honorable thing and resigned from the Republican Party because of what the party had become under Trump. But our system doesn't encourage such shows of courage. And, you know, Amash sadly hasn't inspired any imitators. The last person to seriously defy Donald Trump was John McCain, who gave his deathbed thumbs down to repealing Obamacare. And, of course, Trump has shown that he's not only hasn't he forgiven, he's persecuting McCain even beyond the grave. Do you have any closing thoughts on this whole issue? The Republican Party today is joined at the hip to Donald Trump, 
and his fortunes. And, you know, until now they've risen with him, and we can only watch with delight when they fall with him. You know, it's always worth bearing in mind that although Parliament is prorogued and doesn't come back till October, that Brexit doesn't happen until Halloween, which means there's still two or three weeks of parliamentary deliberation. And as we know in politics, a week is an eternity. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Thank you, Don. Great to be here, John. Thanks. Finally, a few words about the global student climate strike. It's tomorrow, Friday. It's everywhere. And in L.A., it's downtown at Pershing Square at noon. The biggest one, of course, is going to be in New York City, where one million public school students will be excused from class to participate. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio said he supports the move. He wrote in a tweet, New York City stands with our young people. They're our conscience. The leader of the global climate strike, of course, is that 16-year-old Swedish girl named Greta Thunberg. When she was 15, just last year, she started skipping school on Fridays to perch on the steps of the Swedish Parliament building, holding by herself alone a handmade banner that said, School Strike for Climate. She called her protest, Fridays for the Future. Not even her parents at the beginning encouraged her to protest what the planet's adults were doing, stealing her and her generation's future. In the end, Greta Thunberg unexpectedly sparked a movement of young people that's now spread across the planet. Right now, it looks like the most hopeful movement of our times. And tomorrow is a big day. Tomorrow, there'll be over 4,000 events in 150 countries, all of them demanding that governments immediately provide a safe pathway to stay within 1.5 degrees centigrade of global warming. Greta says, we spent weeks and months preparing for this day. We spent uncountable hours organizing and mobilizing when we could have just hung out with our friends or studied at school. But we don't feel like we have a choice. It's been years of talking, countless negotiations, empty deals on climate change and fossil fuel companies being given free rides to drill beneath our soils and burn away our futures for their profit. Greta says politicians have known about climate change for decades. They have willingly handed over their responsibility for our future to profiteers whose search for quick cash threatens our very existence. And then when she testified before Congress, Greta Thunberg said, don't listen to me, listen to the scientists. Bill McKibben, the founder of 350.org, says there are a lot of reasons to join the strike for climate tomorrow. Strike because we've already lost half the animals on the planet since 1970. The earth is a lonelier place. Strike because forests now seem like fires waiting to happen. Strike because every generation faces some great crisis, and this is ours. Strike because what we do this decade will matter for hundreds of thousands of years. Strike because batteries are ever cheaper. We can now store sunshine at night and wind for a calm day. Strike because the big banks continue to lend hundreds of billions to the fossil fuel industry. People are literally trying to get rich off the destruction of the planet. Strike downtown L.A. tomorrow, Friday, Pershing Square at noon. You can't make it to Pershing Square? You can find a strike near you. 
They're all over Southern California tomorrow. USC, 3 p.m. at the Tommy Trojan statue at Han Plaza. In Ventura, noon at Mission Park. San Fernando Valley in Sherman Oaks at noon outside the Sherman Oaks Galleria. North Hollywood High, walk out at 9 a.m. on the Colfax Avenue steps. Santa Monica, 11 a.m. on 4th Street. Pacific Palisades, 4 p.m. in front of the Village Green. Uh, In Malibu, near Pepperdine University. In Westlake Village, in Westchester, in Pasadena, in Long Beach, in Anaheim, in Orange, in Tustin, in Irvine, in Huntington Beach. You can find out all about these at the Sierra Club website or at globalclimatestrike.net. And, of course, in Minnesota, in Duluth, Hibbing, Bemidji, Grand Rapids, in St. Paul at the Science Museum, my hometown, and, of course, at Grand Marais up north at the Canadian border on the North Shore. Tomorrow, the Global Climate Strike, noon downtown at Pershing Square. We'll see you there. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank my guest John Nichols had our political update. Jane McAlevey talked about the UAW strike. Don Guttenplan compared Tories and Republicans. Thanks to our engineer Gary Baca, our producer Renee Reynolds. Stay tuned at 4 o'clock tonight for Rising Up with Sonali on KPFK. Trump Watch returns next week at this same time on this same station. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. 